The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. We've been walking through the Gospel of Luke, and last week we took a look at Jesus healing the leper in Luke 5, chapter, uh, verses 12 through 16, and we saw how Jesus was the total healer. This week we'll see Jesus' inescapable influence, how Jesus is a game changer. Now every now and then a person comes along uh, who revolutionizes the entire way that people see the world and how they interact within it. Religious leaders like Buddha, Muhammad, and Luther, or philosophers like Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle, scientists like Galileo, or Newton, or Einstein. Each leader was a game changer in their own way. Consider Steve Jobs and just the invention of the iPhone. It's completely changed the way we communicate, do business, socialize, get the news, find entertainment, share medical information, get directions, navigate roads, take pictures, share pictures. It changes the way we lose weight, get in shape, monitor our heart rate, pay bills, and track our children. Now, without downplaying the significant impact of all those that I've already mentioned... And despite what John Lennon said back in 1966 about the Beatles being more popular than Jesus, the fact remains that no one can even begin to measure up to Jesus Christ. He is the greatest game changer of all of history. We date time after the man, the world over. And changing the letters from B.C., standing before Christ, to B.C.E., before Common Era, though politically correct, does not change that reality. And not only is Jesus incredibly influential, he has staying power. His kingdom continues to grow. And as you might expect from one who is reigning on the throne, he said that the gates of hell shall not prevail. Now, he didn't say the gates of hell would not put up resistance. He said they would not prevail. Everything centers on this man, Jesus Christ, who we name Emmanuel, God with us. The man we're reading about here in Luke, someone who never traveled more than 50 miles from home, who never had formal schooling, who grew up in a nowhere town of Nazareth outside the centers of power, whose initial followers were average Joes and plain Janes, yet the movement they created dominated the Roman Empire within 300 years, despite all the persecution. Today, Jesus has by far, by far the largest number of followers. Billions have served him, and millions have literally died for this man. 
So what made Jesus Christ such a game changer? Well, Jesus fundamentally changed the who, the when, the where, the what, the why, and the how of salvation. And we'll see this as we walk through the rest of Luke chapter 5. I'm going to read an extended section. I'll paint broad brush strokes so that you can see the basic outline. After each section, I'll I'll, uh, make some comments, then move on and read the next section. So first, let's look at Jesus that changed the what of salvation. Look at uh, verse 17 of chapter 5. On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed. And they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd... They went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven. And the scribes and the Pharisees began questioning, saying, Who is this who blasphemes? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. And amazement seized them all. And they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. There are several surprising turn of events in this brief narrative. As Jesus' popularity grew, it became increasingly difficult for all those who wished to listen to his teaching to fit into one building. Well, this frustrated a small group of men standing outside Uh, because they wanted to get their paralyzed friend to Jesus for the type of healing that only Jesus could give. Now, the first surprising action is that these determined friends would stop at nothing to get their paralyzed friend to Jesus, even if it meant tearing off the roof, which they did. Can you imagine how disruptive and distracting that would have been? The second surprising thing is that no one rebuked them, stopped the vandalism. None of them. Now, I'm fairly sure our security team and ushers would have been on top of the situation. This was clearly out of order, but rather than get frustrated and distract it from his mission, Jesus incorporated these men into his mission. And in fact, Jesus clarifies his admiration for their persistent faith. In verse 20, Jesus says to them, Man, your sins are forgiven. Notice he saw their faith. Jesus rewards the faith of the friends and the faith of the man. Phil Riken offers this helpful clarification. He says, when Luke refers to their faith, this disabled man was included because God does not forgive our sins on the basis of someone else's faith. To be forgiven, we must put our own personal faith in Jesus as this man did. 
The third surprise, even more surprising than failing to address the vandalism and the rude disruption, was, that, was what Jesus did once the paralytic was lowered down. Obvious, obviously, this man was looking for physical healing. But Jesus almost seems to have missed that point, for he says, Son, your sins are forgiven. And, and this response shocks everyone, not just the friends, but the religious leaders. And Luke tells us in verse 21 that the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And, you know, that's the one unsurprising thing, because it's a very good point that the, the scribes and the Pharisees make. Only God can forgive sins. So, by forgiving sins, Jesus is claiming to be God. And this is why they accuse him of blasphemy. See, up to this point, the opinion of the religious establishment is that Jesus was a, a teacher. He's becoming a very popular one, and there was rumors going around that he was performing these miracles, but they're suspicious of Jesus. And now, by claiming to have the authority of God to forgive sins, their suspicions are confirmed that he must be a false teacher. His blasphemy of, of assuming God's authority to forgive sins was punishable by death according to the Old Testament law. Only God could forgive sins. Now, if Jesus was just another teacher or another prophet in a row, their objection would be right on point. But what if Jesus was more than just a good moral teacher or a prophet? What if Jesus could forgive sins because he really was God in the flesh. Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus' next move is direct and simple yet profound. Look at verse 22. When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven you or to say rise and walk? Which is easier to say? That's an interesting way to frame the question. After all, words are simply words. And so from a certain perspective, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven because who can tell if the person is bluffing or not? As one scholar said, forgiveness comes from God in heaven, so who knows whether it's really been granted. The claim cannot be falsified. But when someone says to a cripple, rise and walk, everyone knows right away whether that person is bluffing or whether or not they have the authority to heal. So it's actually harder to say, rise and walk, because if someone says that, then they have to be able to prove it. Now, in reality, we know that forgiving sins is the hardest of all. It would cost Jesus his life to forgive people of their sins. But in this moment, the hardest thing to say was rise and walk. Which is what Jesus goes on to say in verse 25. And immediately, the, uh, the uh, paralytic picks up his mat and walks and glorifies God. And at this, we see the last puzzle piece just nicely fit into to place, and we see the big picture that this whole time Jesus wanted his greatest skeptics to know that he wasn't bluffing. 
that he really did have the authority to forgive sins and that you could take that promise to the bank. And everyone was amazed. And they glorified God and they were filled with awe in verse 26 saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. The what of salvation is extraordinary. It's, it's not merely feeling forgiven by God or, or hoping that you are, but it's, it's knowing that you are forgiven in Christ. And this what of salvation is not merely a spiritual healing of forgiveness, but a total healing. And we've been seeing this throughout Luke. We see it with the paralytic. It's a physical healing. Get up and walk. We saw it with the leper. It was a, a physical and a spiritual and, and a communal healing. See, Jesus came to save us in every way that we need to be saved. He is the total healer. So the what of salvation is is real forgiveness and total healing. Second, the who. Jesus changes the who of salvation. Let's pick up in verse 27. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And Leaving everything, Levi rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with him. The belief of every man-made religion is that God only rescues those worthy, deserving in some way. But Jesus calls Levi here, who is a social and moral outcast, And Jesus extends major grace to one who others would have passed by. Jesus sees this tax collector named Levi sitting at a tax booth. And that simple description tells us all we need to know about this man. Levi is a Jewish name, so he's a Jewish tax collector who is working for the Romans. In other words, he is a thieving sinner. Historians tell us that in those days, the Romans subcontracted the collection of imperial revenue to anyone who wanted to collect taxes, and those people would place a bid for their region, and the winner paid off the government and then tried to levy as many taxes as they could. Obviously, the system was open to a lot of corruption, with all the poll taxes, land taxes, income taxes, road taxes, port taxes, most tax collectors became filthy rich as they collected over and above the amount of their bid. And anything they did over and above, they got to keep. So filthy rich is just the right word for it because they were allowed to collect more than they had to. They're considered robbers because they had to, uh, so much contact with Romans and Gentiles, they're, they're considered unclean. And Richard Phillips tells us that some rabbi taught that if a tax collector came into someone's home, everyone and everything in that home became unclean. So you can imagine how people felt when they saw this man sitting in his toll booth collecting his money. They despised him. Levi's story illustrates the type of people Jesus Jesus saves. This is good news for those who are able to look at Levi and see something of themselves in Levi. One author said it this way, we sit in our little booth trying to get as much as we can for ourselves and not caring too much what we have to do to other people to get it. 
Can you relate to Levi? Maybe something snapped inside of you some time ago and you made a choice that you would no longer restrain certain desires. You want what you want and you'll have the courage to go get it and you're not going to limit yourself by our cultural taboos. And maybe you haven't been able to completely silence your conscience, but you've matured beyond all that childish moralism. Can you relate to Levi? Sitting in your booth, trying to get as much as you can, caring less and less about how it affects others. And if so, I have news for you that is both good and threatening. You are not safe from Jesus. You may have worked very hard to distance yourself from God and from religious people, but you are not safe from Jesus. He can still come after you, as he does with Levi, and maybe he's coming after you this morning. See, when other people fume with hatred and walk past Levi or give up on him as a lost cause, Jesus takes notice, he stops, and he calls to Levi, follow me. And here's the surprising thing in verse 28. It says, Levi leaves everything, rose, and followed Jesus. And when Luke tells us how Levi followed Christ, he uses the active participle, which typically indicates continuous ongoing action. In other words, Levi got up to follow Jesus for the rest of his life, despite what he had to leave behind. In our previous neighborhood, our next-door neighbor and his atheist wife finally agreed to come to church with us after months of double dates and backyard chats. After attending church for a year, the husband wanted to become a member And I remember sitting with him in in our living room and he he was confessing. He said, Dave, I, I never understood grace before. See, he had thought that God's grace was only for those who had made themselves worthy of it. But he said, but now I understand how much God loves me in spite of my sin. And grace has changed everything. His wife was moving in a very different direction. And eventually she left him for another man. And for months I sat on his couch and listened to him pour out his heartache. And I was concerned that he would grow bitter toward God for messing up his life. But his love for God continued to grow. Eventually he followed through and became a member of our church along with his daughter. And like Levi, my neighbor couldn't specifically communicate how Jesus changed his heart. He just knew that he did. That Jesus had grabbed hold of it. Jesus had pointed to him and said, follow me. And he couldn't adequately express why he remained willing to do so despite his lost marriage. All he knew is that Jesus loved him, called him, and changed him. And he couldn't resist God's grace. And now he wanted to worship and serve this God. And he wanted his ex-wife to know this God's grace, and he wanted his daughters to know it, the abiding grace, faithful love, and transforming presence of our Lord. Theologians describe my neighbor's experience as the doctrine of election, and the doctrine of effectual calling, and the doctrine of repentance unto life, and the doctrine of saving faith. My friend just described it as Jesus loves me. And that Jesus is the same today, in 2020, as he was in Levi's day. 
liberating people from their little booths and calling them into vibrant fellowship with himself that transcends all of life's losses. Now, unlike Levi, my neighbor wasn't a thieving sinner. Until that time in his life, he was more an apathetic sinner. And like Levi's conversion, my neighbor's conversion teaches us never to despair of anyone's salvation. If God can save a thieving sinner like Levi, an apathetic sinner like my neighbor, he can save any sinner, even you, even me, any rebel. Jesus is a game changer. He saves big sinners and little sinners, refined sinners and obnoxious ones, apathetic sinners and arrogant sinners, hedonistic sinners, addicted sinners, depressed sinners, anxious sinners, abused sinners, and resentful sinners. And Jesus can save any sinner because that's why he came. That's the who of salvation. And it flies in the face of every religious system known to man. That leads to our next point, the when of salvation. Pick up at verse 30. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, Levi does what people do when called by Jesus. He tells his friends. And in Levi's case, that would have been a motley crew of tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes. And Jesus caused a lot of controversy by feasting with them. The Pharisees complain about Jesus, but this only gives Jesus an opportunity to clarify his purpose. Just as a doctor draws near to sick people, Jesus draws near to sinners. He does not wait for sinners to come to him. He goes to them while they are still sick with sin. And like a physician, Jesus says, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And like a doctor, Jesus never intended for people to wait until they feel better before they come to him. Jesus came for those who were weakened by sin and shame quarantined by fear and doubt, rotting away with guilt and sickness of soul. And so if you are sick with shame and guilt, now is the time of salvation. And if Jesus' calling of Levi and feasting with sinners teaches us anything, it teaches us that Jesus came for sinners while they were still living in sin, while they're still infected by it. And that totally changes the game. As the great old hymn declares... Come, ye sinners, poor and wretched, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, love and power. He is able. He is able. He's willing. Doubt no more. Let not conscience make you linger, nor a fitness fondly dream. Because all the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. And even this he gives you. It's the Spirit's rising beam. See, every other religious system teaches that the when of salvation is is after you do something to, to make yourself worthy. That's what my neighbor thought. But Jesus changes all that. Salvation comes to unclean lepers, total paralytics, self absorbed tax collectors, still sitting in their booths of sin. Are you sick with shame and guilt? Come to Jesus for forgiveness for restoration and healing. Come today. Don't wait another minute. There's no probationary period for grace. 
Come today, even while I'm preaching, you can pray silently in your heart to Jesus, saying, I am sick. I am so sick and tired of myself and my sin. I'm overwhelmed by guilt. I know not the extent of what ails me, but I just know I'm sick and I can't heal myself. So Jesus, come, heal me. Poor and wretched, weak and wounded I am. I surrender to your healing touch. Do what I cannot do. You have the power to make it right. If you prayed that, I encourage you to tell someone here this morning, someone sitting next to you, maybe a friend or a spouse, come talk to me. There's the who, the what, the when, and then the where of salvation. As you read through the gospel accounts, one of the patterns you'll notice is the utter surprise of where salvation happens. See, Jesus' brothers constantly tell him, go to Jerusalem and show off your power there. But he does very few miracles in Jerusalem. He spends most of his time out in the community, not at the temple, not in Jerusalem. He teaches on the road, in synagogues, in a boat, by the sea. He teaches in people's homes, even feasting in the homes of immoral tax collectors. Now, pretty much all religions, the place where salvation happens is the sacred place, the temple, Maybe there were outposts like the high places where there's altars, but, but healing, communion, salvation happens at the sacred places, not on the streets. But Jesus changes all that because he's Emmanuel, God with us. And as God in the flesh, wherever he goes, becomes a sacred place. What do you think Jesus meant when he said, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days? He's speaking of himself that he is the true temple of God, the place where God dwells on earth. And Jesus, is, in claiming to be the very presence of God, Emmanuel with us changes everything. It changes the where of salvation. All of a sudden, salvation can happen in common places, even vile places like a tax booth or a sinner's party, because that's where God chooses to go. That's the power of the incarnation, Salvation happened wherever Jesus went. And wherever he went, the sacred space saturated and changed common space. And Jesus essentially erased the sacred secular divide when he told his followers, go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you to the very end of the age. Where does salvation happen today? Well, it happens wherever Jesus' people still serve. There's no need to take a pilgrimage or visit a shrine. That adds nothing. This is another game changer. For we do not have to go to sacred places to get saved. Rather, the kingdom of God is coming and it's penetrating our common space. And it brings salvation through the preaching of the gospel and serving in his name. And we, his followers, create sacred space to every common space, every vile place. Whether it's school or at work or on the athletic field or in the coffee shop. As we simply represent him and love others and speak truth in his name. That's the what, the who, the when, and the where. Lastly, why and how. Verse 33 and they said to him, the disciples of John fast and offer, often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, can you make a wedding guest fast while the bridegroom is with them? 
The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. See, after the Pharisees criticized Jesus for spending too much time with sinners, they now criticize his followers for spending too much time celebrating. And they appeal not only to their own example, but to the example of John the Baptist's disciples. And this just reinforces and exposes that the normal expected religious way for obtaining God's blessings is through your discipline, through your self-denial, through your sacrifice. I mean, after all, John's disciples fasted and the Pharisees fasted, but then they look at Jesus's and they see they're feasting, they're eating and drinking. But Jesus offers no apology. Rather, he doubles down and demands that they be the ones that rethink things. And he says, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? Don't be ridiculous. You can't do that. Of course my disciples feast because I'm the bridegroom and just as wedding guests feast, so my followers feast. As long as the bridegroom remains, it's not only inappropriate but rude to fast. See, it's all about the bridegroom, his presence, his provision. And this changes the why of salvation. See, the why of salvation is not based on our efforts, but it's rather based on Jesus' provision, his free, unmerited grace that he pours out. And this leads right into the how of salvation. If we think about the bridegroom image, think about any wedding banquet you've gone to, all the guests of the bridegroom feast for free because someone else has already paid the bill. That's what I love about weddings. And in the same way, we feast and celebrate and enjoy God's salvation for free, not because salvation is free, it's actually extremely costly, but we feast for free because someone else has paid the bill. The bridegroom, Jesus and his father, already have it all worked out. But it gets better, for we're not just the guests of the bridegroom. As Christians, we are the bride of Jesus He has set his covenantal love upon us, taken us as his own, bound himself to us forever, given us a new name, promises us a new home, a lavish inheritance, and a bright future. And when we join ourselves to him in that forever relationship, as in marriage, our debt becomes his debt, and his wealth becomes our wealth. And Jesus paid all our debts on the cross. And his account was joined to our account when he legally bound himself to us at our justification. And at that moment, his righteousness is credited to us. See, Jesus Christ changes everything. This is the most important thing that can ever happen to God's people, which is why there's so much celebration. He changes the what, the why, and the how of salvation. The whole paradigm shifts. See, the gospel is knowing and enjoying and celebrating the bridegroom, but the Pharisees are still trying to fit Jesus into the same religious paradigms of every other religious system, thinking it's primarily about discipline and ritual and fasting and effort and self-denial. And Jesus warns them, you cannot do that. You will lose out twice over. You will miss out on me and who I am, and you will lose out on what I offer, a total salvation that changes everything, a salvation by grace. And so Jesus closes with three parables that express this warning of out with that old religious system and in with the new. And he tells it three times to reinforce his main point. 
that Jesus is not just another religious leader. He's a game changer. So don't try to fit him into your existing mold. You have to take him as he is and let him change you and remake you. Pick up in verse 36. He says, No one tears a piece of cloth from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst and the skins burst the skins and it will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, desires the new, for he says the old is good. Now, these parables may sound strange to us because, well, we drink our wine out of a bottle and who really sews their clothes anymore? But, but the parables are striking See, some people try to take little pieces of Jesus and patch him into their old way of doing things. But the gospel will not mix and match with man-made religion. It only ruins things when you try to do that, and it makes you look ridiculous. Think about it. People do not cut pieces out of a brand new outfit and sew them into old clothes. Their old clothes would look strange. And the new ones would be ruined. Yet that's exactly what the Pharisees are doing. And that's exactly what religious people continue to do today. They try to patch Jesus in. Again, he says, people do not put new wine into old wineskins because as wine ferments, it expands. And old wineskins are already stretched out and brittle. And so people put new wine into new wineskins because new wineskins are supple and still have room to stretch. But when you put new wine into old wineskins, the wineskins burst and both the wine and the wineskins are wasted. See, Jesus has come to bring explosive joy to people who desperately need to be saved. And this is not something contained within the worldview of man-made religion like that of the Pharisees. And while some try to patch Jesus onto their old ways, others try to fit him into their old beliefs. And third, still others refuse him at all. Look at verse 39. There are those who say, well, the old wine's good enough. I don't want to try any new wine. Now, this statement can be hard to understand for wine connoisseurs because we're often, we often think old wine is better. But, you know, that's not actually always the case. It depends on the vintage, doesn't it? And the wine Jesus offers is the best vintage. And yet some refuse even to taste what Jesus offers. The question is, are you willing to taste of Jesus, the real Jesus? If you do, brace yourself. He is a game changer. So don't try to take a little bit of Jesus and patch him onto your old ways, your sinful sexuality or your moralism or your politics. Don't try to bottle him up and fit him into your old wineskins. He will break all old paradigms. He will break any mold you try to fit him into. And Jesus will not only forgive you of your sins, he will forgive you, but he will strengthen you to walk in new ways of righteousness. He will draw you out of your sinful booth and set you to walking right. See, he insists on giving sinners new clothes of righteousness. Righteousness that he gives you, one that you don't earn for yourself. And so if you haven't done so already, I bid you, taste of Jesus. Let us pray. God, we thank you for this Jesus 
What an amazing game changer. His grace is amazing. It changes everything in salvation. The what, that it's not just a spiritual thing, but it's, it's an everything. He saves us physically and relationally and spiritually, psychologically. And Lord, he changes the who of salvation. He, he saves sinners while they're still sinful. And he is a God who's come. He's come into our dark places. He comes after us. And we thank you for this, for we could not save ourselves. We thank you for a God who loves and who comes after us and is willing to do whatever it takes to win us back to himself. Lord, help us to understand this. Help it to get down deep into our hearts so that we are willing to let go of the old man-made religion and take Jesus for who he is and taste of this sweet, fresh wine and to be changed. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.